Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome uh, to this uh, great evening when we are going to be uh, celebrating the launch in Britain of this wonderful book by Danny Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, you don't need an introduction to Danny Kahneman, but I'm going to read out some of the things which it says on the back here because they're so amazing. This is, the first is by Steven Pinker, who is one of the world's leading psychologists. He says, Daniel Kahneman is certainly the most important psychologist alive today and among the most influential in history. The, uh, Nassim Taleb, author of The Black Swan, says, this is a landmark book in social thought in the same league as the no, Wilson... No. Uh, I'm going to go on. I'm going to go on. <laughs> It's in the same league, because there's, 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 see what you think, same league as the wealth of nations and the interpretation of dreams by Sigmund Freud. <laughs> Good. He's not known for understatement. <laughs> now, here's the review in the Financial Times. There have been many good books on human rationality and irrationality, but only one masterpiece. That masterpiece is Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, and then he goes on, and it, his experience is obviously the same as mine. I mean, I, I'm familiar with some of this stuff, um, but I couldn't put this book down. It is such a wonderful read. I think it's because in every chapter he's addressing the reader. How would you answer this question? Not 70% of people say this which he eventually gets round to, but how would you answer this question? And you, it's amazing to find how you would. Um, but, but what he also says, this, this uh, reviewer, is my main problem in doing this review was preventing family members and friends from stealing my copy of the book to read it for themselves. Uh, I think that uh, says enough. Um, I thought he must have a very unusual family, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he, probably, he, probably, he probably has. <laughs> um, now, uh, you all know that uh, Danny is the only psychologist to have won the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, and the reason for that was that he did this uh, amazing empirical work over decades um, that uh, cast, let's say more than cast question on the standard assumptions which we teach all our economic students. Uh, namely that uh, people have consistent and stable preferences and they use them uh, to make rational decisions. Uh, what Danny's work with Amos Tversky showed uh, was that people actually have often very inconsistent preferences, very unstable preferences, uh, and their decisions are constantly distorted by irrelevant things and that leads to bad outcomes. Um, and it's really important to know that. Um, the problem is what to make of it. Uh, uh, in terms, if you're a policy maker, what do we, what do we say? Because we, had a, we thought we had a rudder in the, in the economic theory that we used. Uh, Danny has removed the rudder. Um, but he hadn't at that stage provided an alternative one. But in the last 15 years, he has been offering an alternative rudder, which is the, the rudder based on well-being. Uh, and he's been arguing... Uh, on this platform as well as elsewhere, <laughs> that uh, you can measure well-being, uh, that it is the right way to think about social progress um, uh, and the, the comparison um, of our conditions of living, 
um, and that it is the way uh, we should make policy. We should be trying to improve the well-being uh, of the population. Um, of course, to do that, we will need to understand much more than we do uh, about what causes well-being. Danny is one of the fiercest critics <laughs> of people who say that they know the answers to that question. Uh, that will be a big, long uh, research effort. Um, but one, when we've got it, uh, it will provide us with a, a basis for doing much more to improve uh, the human lot. Well, this is a movement of thought that's, that's now going on worldwide. Um, and I think it's clear uh, that uh, if, and he would be the first to say he wasn't the first person to think about well-being, <laughs> but he has been the leader of this movement. He's got these people together who were in odd pockets here and there working on it. Um, and of course, um, he has done more than anybody else to make the idea uh, respectable. So now, for example, an extraordinary thing happened, little reported, um, at the UN, uh, UN General Assembly last July, when all the nations of the world unanimously adopted a resolution um, that governments should do more to improve the happiness of their people, and that this should be the subject of a, an ongoing process uh, within the UN. This is an extraordinary thing to have happened 15 years after the subject was basically a joke. So um, it's, a, it's a, a very long way that we've come, and Danny has played um, an extraordinarily important part in it. For me, uh, the lightning struck uh, in this very room when Danny gave the 1998 Robbins uh, lectures here, and he talked, amongst other things, about the measurement of well-being, uh, that uh, self-report uh, measurements were uh, correlated with physical measurements, quotes, objective measurements that could be made uh, in the brain. That had an enormous impact on me, I must say. That changed the course of my life. <laughs> and uh, I've basically been a duty of Danny's ever since. Um, and uh, we have started here uh, about six years ago a wellbeing programme in the Centre for Economic Performance, um, which owes an enormous amount to the support that we've had. Uh, an encouragement from from Danny. Um, this is uh, probably you don't know this. I don't know. It says it anywhere. No, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> this is the 21st anniversary of the founding of the Centre for Economic Performance, and um, this event fits nicely in the sequence of events that we've had to celebrate it. And it's wonderful to have Danny here, who's who's actually done so much for our centre um, to contribute yet more <laughs> to, to, to our well-being. Um, so I think we should uh, move on to your book. And perhaps we should, should start. Um, I described Danny's work in two phases. We should start with the, the phase that some people, some economists certainly, uh, would regard as a demolition job. Um, and then we can come on to the construction of the well-being uh, alternative uh, later on. Now, um, as you say in your book, I think sometime in the 1970s, Amos Tversky um, told you that economists assumed that people were rational, um, had consistent preferences and stable preferences, and, and were 
selfish. And, and you found this ex so extraordinary uh, yes. that, that the two of you decided <laughs> to uh, go and uh, well, find counterexamples and to work seriously on the working of the human mind to, to find out what was really going on. Uh, and from that um, has come the, this overall picture of how the human mind work, uh, which is uh, summarised in this very simple phrase, uh, thinking fast and slow. So perhaps, Danny, you could start by telling us uh, what you mean by that. Well, um, you know, every one of us has access to the fact that there are two ways that thoughts come to mind. So, you know, if I say two plus two, something comes to your mind. And if I say 24 times 17, then probably nothing comes to your mind. <laughs> uh, and, but you, something does, actually. You know it's a multiplication problem. You know how to tackle it. You, you either know that you could do it or you know that you couldn't do it without paper and pencil. Uh, so things do come to your mind, but not the solution, which happens to be 408. But to produce that solution, you need to do something else. You need to go through steps. You need to load your short-term memory with intermediate products. You need to know where you're going. In short, you need to exert effort and pay attention, and which is absolutely unnecessary when I say 2 plus 2. That is, two plus, the answer to 2 plus 2 came unbidden. It came by itself. No effort was involved. And effort is important not only, I mean, it has physiological manifestations, but the, the most important aspect of attention and effort is that they are limited resources. There is a limit to how much we can do at any one time. And, you know, my example, my standard example is that, uh, you know, if, if you have to stop doing it when you're making a left turn into traffic, uh, then it's effortful because uh, you know that making a left turn into traffic, unless you're really not a sensible person, is going to be prioritized over other activities, and the only way to deal with those things is to stop doing other things and focus on what is the priority at any one time. So there are those two types of thought processes, and those that are essentially automatic, and typically occur very quickly, and those that are more laborious, effortful, and often occur more slowly, usually actually occur more slowly. So those are the two, you know, there is that division, it's quite intuitive that there is that division. It is in fact remarkable that uh, it didn't take hold in psychology until about the last two decades, I think, and you know, this is not my idea. There were many people, uh, you know, everybody was aware of it. And Amos Tversky and I, when we were studying judgment uh, 40 years ago, we distinguished computation from intuition, and we strongly recommended that statisticians not use their intuitions to, for example, to decide the sample size for their experiment, because the intuitions were bad. And, and led systematically uh, to errors in, in statistical, in actually the conduct of research. People were systematically, still are by the way, uh, taking samples that are much too small for their experiments. 
because of an intuition that that should be enough. If my hypothesis is true, that should be enough to verify it. So everybody had been aware of that distinction, roughly, but it's taken hold as, as a theoretical distinction uh, central to psychology only over the last 15 or 20 years. So there are those two types of thinking. Um, and then I do something uh, which not everybody approves of. In fact, many people think that it's a scandal, so I might as well uh, confess it. I, instead of speaking of type one processes, which are the automatic ones, and type two processes, which are the effortful one, I speak of system one and system two. And instead of saying those processes occur and they have these characteristics, I say system one does this, and system two does that, and furthermore, they interact in various ways. So I, I populate the mind you know, with two agents, those two systems. So I want to make it clear that they don't exist. So you know, the, that whole, the, the way I talk about it, is, it's a fictitious, you know, it's a psychodrama with two fictitious actors. And I want to explain, this is taking a bit longer maybe than you intended, no. but I want to explain Everyone's why I do this by referring to another book, uh, which you may have read, and if you haven't, I recommend you do. It's called Moonwalking with Einstein, and it came out earlier this year. And it is about Joshua Furr, who was a science writer and who went to the memory championship of the United States, which is a strange thing where people memorize decks of cards and impossible lists and so on. And a year later, so he became curious how that is done. It turns out the Greeks knew how to do it, and then there have been minor refinements on what the Greeks already knew. A year later, Joshua Furr was the memory champion of the United States, and he wrote a very entertaining book describing his journey. And, and he observed something really quite interesting, which has, you will recognize, the mind is terrible, or memory is terrible at storing lists. It is very good at storing routes through space. So if you want to remember a list, you have to mentally distribute it along a route through space, and then when you imagine traveling along that route, you will recover the item. It works. The Greeks knew it. It's called the method of loci, and the Greeks knew it, the Romans knew it. Something very similar happens when we think about mental operations. People are very bad. I mean, you know, all of science is based on saying sentences that have abstract subjects, but in fact we're not very good at processing these sentences, most of us are not. What we're very good at is remembering and thinking about agents. So agents have behaviors, very easy to remember. Agents have traits, very easy to remember. So this is basically a mnemonic trick, my use of system one and system two as agents. It will make it easier, I think, for people to think about those two types of activities. It makes it a lot easier for me to write about them. And so I wanted to let you know they are fictitious and they're important. Most of the book is about system one. I don't know much. Uh, and, and about a function of system two that I haven't mentioned yet, which is that system two 
exerts control, monitors and controls behavior. And the important characteristics that we have to keep in mind is that system one operates all the time. It comes up with, you know, suggestions, responses, associations, emotions. And system two monitors it loosely and translates those initial reactions of system one into uh, into responses, into behaviors, or into thoughts that are formulated. We feel we are the authors of the thoughts of system two. But system one really keeps whispering and suggesting things to system two, and most of behavior, most of the time, we're guided by the automatic activities of system one, which is a wonderful thing because most of these activities are skilled and skills are automatic. We drive, we walk, we talk to people most of the time with very little thought and very little effort. So understanding how that works is, is really the key. Uh, and understanding the characteristics what system one can and cannot do is the task that I set myself in this book. And it turns out it can do wonderful things and it has very strange limitations. And, you know, if you'll probe me to say more about those wonders or... Well, I, I wanted, I wanted to... to, uh, to I, w I did want to encourage you to say a little more about some of the ways in which System 1 trips us up. Um, but, but then to, to ask you um, if there are any general principles which distinguish the cases where System 1 trips us up from those where system one works fine. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people here have read Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Now, the, the, the argument there is that uh, uh, particularly experts will just know, without knowing why, but they will know <laughs> the answer to an issue. Um, and there's also a very interesting book um, called The Wisdom of Crowds which uh, shows that the masses, when you take them in aggregate, also seems to know quite a lot of things r rather well. Um, and yet your, your book is also full of cases in which things we think we know are completely wrong. How do we know what determines when they're right and when they're wrong? I think the key is really this notion of skill. And uh, skilled behavior is behavior that has become automatic. So we are skilled at walking, we're skilled at driving. We have many other skills. Uh, you know, we can, uh, the same example always comes to my mind that I recognize my wife's mood on the first word she says on the telephone. <laughs> now, this is a skill that all of us have. You know, we walk into a room, we know they've been talking about us. Uh, you know, there are. Socially, we have many social skills which smooth the way. We, we know what distance to take when, from other people. You know, it's a skill. We don't reflect upon it, but we adopt a distance that is mutually comfortable, which is different in different cultures. Most of what we do is skilled. And most of what we do is just fine. So it is not that, you know, we are creatures of error, that we are stupid, or absolutely not. It turns out that 
system one, which carries out all those skilled behaviors, also produces mistakes. Now, where does it produce mistakes? Well, it produces mistakes when questions arise or tasks arise for which it doesn't have a skilled answer. So there are questions that are difficult. So if I uh, ask you, um, well, I will give you an example. Here, here is one. Uh, so I have that lady, she's called Julie. She is uh, uh, graduating from university this year. And I add a fact about Julie that she read fluently at age four. And now I ask you, what is her, the average of her grades as she graduates from university? And I want to make only a simple point you have an idea. Something came to your mind very, very quickly as an answer to that question. I, you know, I don't know the grading system in the UK. I know that in the United States out of four, you know, people would say 3.5, 3.6. Definitely more than 3.2, definitely less than four. How do we know that? How do we do that? Well, it, it turns out that this is, a, this is a process. It's a system one activity because the answer comes to your mind immediately. We do that by evaluating how precocious her reading ability is, almost in terms of percentile. What is, how many children learn to read at age four or earlier? And then we match that percentile to a grade point average. And this is how the, this is the grade point average that comes to your mind. It's the wrong answer statistically. It's a non-regressive prediction. It is much too extreme. There are many other factors you would need to know. But system one is characterized by the fact that it, it uses information as if it were unlimited. It doesn't, it, it takes whatever information there is and it creates the best story possible and the most consistent story. That's, this is a characteristic of system one. That leads to an error. I'll give you just one other example from a study that I cite a lot, not one of mine. Uh, it was done in the 1990s during a period uh, when there was a lot of terrorist activity in Europe and it was addressed to people in England. The questions were addressed to people in England. And one group was asked, uh, how much would you pay for travel insurance that covers, that will pay $100,000 in case of death for any reason? And other people were asked, how much would you pay for travel insurance that will pay $100,000 in case of death in a terrorist incident? Now, people pay more, substantially more, for the second policy than for the first. <laughs> now, this is absurd, because of course, death for any reason includes death uh, in a terrorist incident. In fact, you know, it's much more likely. but. The way system one deals with this question, if there is something that you know immediately, that comes to mind immediately, which is how afraid you are, what is your emotional response? And you have a stronger emotional response to death in a terrorist incident than to death, for any reason. 
and that's it. So you translate the answer, how much would I be willing to pay, is really a transformation of something that system one has produced, which is a reaction of fear and emotional evaluation of those two stories. So that's how it works. The answer is produced by system two. You know, it's, I mean, it's a conscious answer, and furthermore, you have some, you have to deliberate on currency and on, on how much you want to pay for insurance generally, and there are many other things that happen. But basically, it is a mapping of fear onto a scale of insurance payments. So that's the way the two systems work, and in that case, it produces something that is absurd, because we're not skilled, and the way that it produces that absurd result which is very characteristic, is by answering the wrong question, by answering a question that is simpler than the question that you were asked. So system one has answered to many questions because it has that ability to map across dimensions and to take the answer to a simple question and use it as an answer to the, the complex question. And when that happens to you or to me or to us, we're not aware of it. So this is a case where you have an intuition, it is not skilled, it is liable to error, and you have no idea that this is happening to you. So that's... So, so what you've been talking about so far is errors of judgment, rather than uh, how they impact on decisions. But obviously, if you make a mistake uh, like that, you might actually pay up. The wrong well, amount for that. Uh, on insurance, that's a decision. That's a decision. Yeah. Okay, okay. So it's, it's not to just a judge. So, um, in some sense, you said it's absurd. Um, you might say it's not rational. Uh, certainly, um, if we look at the way rationality is used um, by economists um, to mean something which makes sense and leads to um, a sensible and efficient outcome. That would not be uh, in that class. So I mean, the way that e economists think about rationality is that it, it, uh, in, in an unfettered market, it can produce an efficient outcome, except in certain circumstances. And then we list them, so we say, this externality, you won't have an efficient outcome for public goods, you won't have an efficient outcome if there's asymmetric information, you won't have an important and an efficient outcome. But it, we don't list absurd activities of the human mind. Um, now, it, economists use their framework as a way of thinking about when government should do something and when it shouldn't. Um, does the fact that you've added in another problem that leads to inefficient outcomes mean that there's implicit there a, a case for a wider scope for government activity? Well, you know, this is a matter of, of judgment and value. Uh, there are predictable errors that people make. The, I don't like the word rational. I certainly don't like the word irrational, and I really cringe when people say that you know our work has demonstrated irrationality. 
I think of irrationality as frothing at the mouth, and I, you know, and, and what we have done is nothing of the kind. We, we deal with people who are basically reasonable and skilled and pretty good at what they do, and who occasionally make mistakes, which in some cases are very severe. Uh, the notion of rationality, as it is used in economics, is psychologically, it's a non-starter. I mean, it, the, the level of consistency that it requires, the, uh, you know, the looking, seeing everything and seeing into the future and ensuring the consistency of all of your answers to all questions when you're asked them these questions one at a time. All, all of this is, is totally impossible. I mean, it's, it's absurd to think that the human mind could do this. Now, the application of the idea of rationality to policy has had some really pernicious consequences. And that is where it could make a difference. And the, pernicious, the most pernicious consequence is the idea that if people are rational, you do not need to protect them against their own mistakes because they're not making any. Furthermore, the only obligation of government in regulating trade is to make sure that true information is disclosed. And that's enough. If true information is disclosed, rational agents will get themselves to the optimal outcome. Well, people do need protection against their own mistakes because they make highly predictable mistakes in many contexts, including savings and you know, purchase of insurance and many other things. Furthermore, people need protection against predators because predators, or sophisticated predators, will disclose all the relevant information in small print. And it's possible that a rational agent would read the small print, but people don't. They don't read the small print, and I defy you. You know, when you see those things, when you take up a new software, <laughs> and you know, you've got to read all that thing, or scroll to the bottom and say, I agree. Nobody reads these things. <laughs> Now, they could put a lot of things in the small print, and they do, in many cases. So I think there is room for government action in protecting individuals who have limited rationality. And we, in fact, you know, are human beings, not, not idealized agents. And are there other ways in which we could improve the way in which people make their judgments? I mean, this, you're talking about now regulation from the government. But are there, I don't know, educational strategies, other strategies which we could follow? Well, um, there is a, a major temperamental difference between Richard and me. Richard is a true optimist, and I am a true pessimist. <laughs> and uh, uh, and it's, it will show up in, uh, in my answer to this question. I'm... I don't think that reading this book will prevent any of you from making any significant mistakes. Because, <laughs> because I can tell you that it hasn't helped me. I mean, it's not <laughs> writing it hasn't helped me. So I'm really very pessimistic. And, and you can see why. Because if the problems arise in System 1, and if we're not aware that they arise in System 1, then the possibility of correcting those mistakes is really quite remote. And the only thing that you can do is to recognize situations in which 
you're likely to make an error. And then you don't trust yourself. Then you call for reinforcements from system two. So for example, if you have limited information and you're asked to predict how well somebody will do in a job, you might say, well, in this case, I'm prone to extreme predictions. And I should, I should use regression. I should correct my estimate. I don't think you will do this because I know I do it very rarely. And you know, I've been studying this problem a long time. Where is there hope, so far as I'm concerned? So, and you know, uh, so there is some hope in this book. Uh, I, I wrote this book with one idea in mind, basically, to educate gossip. Uh, I think people talk about other people all the time, and they think about other people a lot, and they criticize other people. And, and in general, people are more intelligent about the problem of other people than they are about their own. I know that's true of me. Uh, and educa by educating gossip, I mean introducing a language that is more sophisticated, concepts that are more refined, other ways, ways of thinking about the way that people make judgments and, and decisions. And there are terms, you know, like regressive prediction, like anchoring, like the use of base rate. I mean, there, are, there is a terminology that can be acquired and, and it will help you find errors in thinking about other people. This is, this is what I hope for. If we were in a society that understood the problems of judgment better, in a society where gossip would be more sophisticated, gossip about judgments and decisions, I believe that judgments and decisions would be better than they are. And the reason is that we do have a standard procedure, we anticipate gossip. We anticipate what other people will say and do about our decisions. And if we anticipate intelligent gossip, we might act more intelligently. So this is one thing for which I have some hope, not much. <laughs> the other is institutions can, can improve themselves. So institutions can implement methods to test, for, to look for biases or to, or to improve decisions, to perform what I call quality control over their decisions. So that is again something where an institution that is informed can, I think, get some improvement. Again, it's, it's going to be limited, and it's, but there are possibilities, I think neglected possibilities for, for decisions, for institutions to improve themselves by some knowledge of the psychology of judgment and decision making. Whether this book will make the world a much better place, uh, I doubt it. Well, you're pleased to know that this institution uh, abandoned interviewing most of its students uh, who are applying for places on the basis of research by Hilda Himmelweit uh, on the to almost total absence of correlation um, between interview scores and the subsequent performance of a student. You report some that. other, some other, other yeah. research by Meal, is it? Something yeah, like Paul that. Meal. Um, which, which found the same thing. Uh, it is extraordinary, the amount of time that is wasted in British universities interviewing students of really talented people's time is quite horrifying. I would say especially at, uh, at Oxford and Cambridge, it's, it's quite amazing. <laughs> uh, 
Interviews in some situations actually make things worse. They, they, they reduce the predictive validity of, uh, of selection decisions. And this is the case when the people who interview also make the final decision because they give too much weight for their impressions to their impressions from the interview. So even if they have all the information in front of them, they do worse after interviewing than if they made their decision on the basis of the other information. This is, so yeah, I'm glad to hear that LSE doesn't do it. You know, I, I always loved the, the story about the, um, the auditioning of violinists when they put up the, the screen so that you, you can't see what the person looks like. Yeah, that's right. And uh, very, as, as we know, many more women get selected for orchestras that way. Um, I think it's time to move on to well-being, if that's all right with you. Um, you're very keen on the idea that we should measure the well-being of the population um, and think about it. But, of course, a lot of people are very sceptical of whether well-being can be measured um, in a convincing way. Um, and I wonder if you could give them their answer. Well, um on well-being, I think, it turned out that you are much more optimistic than I am. <laughs> so, and that, you know, what you, uh, you attributed to me a lot of things that you have done and that I would not have dared do. So, uh, the, I think, yes, you know, to people who say you can't measure well-being, I would say that's nonsense. Of course, we can measure many very useful things about well-being. Uh, and, but it's, it, it is going to be a very complicated process, I think. And we have to decide, and that is not at all obvious, what well-being is, what subjective well-being is. And, you know, I have distinguished between two major facets of it. Uh, one is the quality of your emotional experience as you live, and the other is how satisfied you are with your life when you think about your life. Turns out that you get different answers uh, as to what causes well-being, depending on which of these you measure. So the UK is engaged in a, you know, a very ambitious effort to measure the well-being of, of populations. And you know, we'll, we will learn a lot, I think, from, from that experience. But we also should know that the levers of policy, if you're looking at the population at large, the levers of policy that are available to government are not going to make a huge difference. They're going to make a small and localized difference. That is what I think the data suggests. So we've got to decide to the uses to which uh, measures of well-being will be put. And, and I think this certainly deserves a considerable amount of effort. As to the objectives of policy, here we differ. Uh, because you think, being an optimist, you, know, you think about happiness. And uh, being a pessimist, I think about misery. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm more concerned with reducing misery than with promoting happiness. Uh, so, and, and I feel this is where the government ought to be, you know, that the government ought to be thinking along 
those directions. And I, you know, this is a, a disagreement. You are you're a doer. You're an optimist uh, more than I am. No, I don't think I don't think that is a disagreement um, at all. Actually, I, I've always said that you should give more weight to the reduction of misery than the increase in happiness. I even included it in an economic textbook that I wrote in the 1970s, um, <laughs> where I ventured to support the idea of cardinal happiness uh, in the same way that we now now think about it. Um, so I actually don't think there's a disagreement about that. Um, but uh, but I, I wanted to pursue this a little more. I mean, uh, in due course, we will know more about what causes the well-being as we measure it. Um, and we will have these different measures which are affected differently by different things. Um, for example, the sort of hedonic measurement of happiness as experienced moment by moment is less affected by income than um, people's judgmental uh, assessment of their uh, their life. Um, in your book, you, I um, can't remember which page, <laughs> but you interested me by saying that you think we should use both of these. Oh yes. Um, that, that when we say we, that policymakers, advocates of solutions to the human condition should be looking at both of these. This is what you're saying. Um, of course, the problem for, for the policymakers um, if they are tidy-minded, at least they want one number. Uh, if they want they want one number which they can maximise, and then they can choose their priorities between different uh, things that they might do on the basis of how it would affect uh, that one number. So, so which makes me wonder uh, if you think that these uh, this type of information is relevant to policy. Do you think that we should? say to policymakers, well, why not just average those two, the, the, the hedonic end and the, the judgmental end, uh, or go for something halfway in between, or which, where you, maybe you find think, concepts like life satisfaction, or... You know, I mean... Uh, you, or, you, or maybe you don't want any optimizing process at all. My, 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 my belief is, and tell me if you agree or not, my belief is that if we want to get research which is really helpful to policymakers, um, we've got to to get them thinking about what they want in order to do some kind of an optimising process. Uh, and I mean, one thing which has always struck me, uh, I don't anybody from the Treasury here, but it, it is amazing if you talk for anybody, to anybody in the Treasury they will always say to you, what on earth is wrong with academia? When we ask any absolutely basic question, nobody has done any research on it. Now, uh, I, I, I think the way, the way to, make, <laughs> to stop this happening is to, to, to get them to think about what they, what they want to optimise and what they need, would need to know to do that. And then we can hopefully get academics interested in, in trying to understand the fundamental uh, processes which generate the outcomes which they're, they're interested in. Um, but, um, well, you've been supportive of, of our idea. We, we had to do a little bit of advertising. Uh, we in the centre, some members are here, um, are 
embarking on an excessively ambitious um, project to try and build a model of the, how the individual's well-being evolves over their lifetime because obviously how well off a person feels, how, how well they feel at a point in time depends not, not just on what's happen, happening to them now but um, what happened to them before, how that affected what they expected and how and indeed it also affected how they got to be where they are now. So this, this is the sort of framework that I think the Treasury should be encouraging people to, uh, to, to study uh, and to put numbers on what the strength of these different effects is. What is more important? Is it more important how your parents bring you up or whether your mother goes out to work um, or whether you go to a, a good academic school or uh, etc.? Um, or is it more important just how much money the family has? Uh, th these are extraordinarily important questions. And uh, I would like the thought that you know, we would be allocating our national resources uh, in a way that uh, helps us to make people better off in the light of the strength of these different effects. But do you think this is the right way to think, or is it just misguided? I think you know, I think it is a very optimistic way to think. It's not, uh, uh, you know, I, I tend to view problems in everywhere in this context. In the first place, uh, so you are in the world of policy, you know. I feel that if there is, if well-being is multidimensional, you know, then, and truly multidimensional, and we don't have a principled way of averaging, then you know they're going to have to lump it. I mean, they're going to have to take it uh, that it is multidimensional, and and it's a question. It's a question of value. It's a, a value judgment is is to be made about which of these dimensions is more important. And in my in my view, both matter. I personally, because I think of misery. Uh, I'm more oriented to the emotional aspect rather than to life satisfaction because misery is misery. It is it is the emotional thing. Mm -hmm. It is not merely being dissatisfied with your life in the abstract. It is pain, which I would like to mm -hmm. reduce. So, if if I had something to to select, it would be misery because I think it is closer to being a single dimension. Uh, Well-being, the opposite is a fan of many different, there are many, many different ways, I think, of, of achieving well-being at the positive end. And, and uh, you know, how, how to compare them, how to put them all on a scale is something that I really don't know. Now, we're at the beginning of our understanding of well-being. I mean, there's so, much, so many empirical questions that we don't know. I'll give you one example. It's very clear that there are going to be physical, you know, medical consequences of high well-being or low well-being. And at least I don't know whether it is life satisfaction or experience that is more closely correlated with the medical effects of whether it's, you know, life dissatisfaction or misery that, that have the worst effect on health many questions that can be asked that we don't have the answer to. Having those answers may help 
philosophers, policy makers, students of well-being, assign relative weights to the different dimensions. But we're really at the beginning of that journey. I think. And maybe the research that is being done here, because the numbers are going to be so large, is going to contribute to our, to our understanding of that problem. Well, I think the time has come for other people to start asking the questions. Um, we've got, we'll, we'll, we'll go on until about a quarter to eight. Um, so we've got some roving mics, what, two, two downstairs, two upstairs. Uh, Guy. Thank you very much for uh, uh, so a question uh, for you, Danny. Uh, you mentioned uh, this thing which I think everybody knows from their own life that it's much easier to spot faults in other people's reasoning and, and thoughts than your own. And I was just wondering um, what are your views for why that is the case? Well, I think, you know, when people are, are making mistakes, they're busy making the mistakes. I mean, so that just doesn't leave all that much for, for self-examination. You're responding to a situation. And somebody else sees both the situation and how you respond to it. And they are better able to detect the incongruity. You respond to the situation because in a way that feels right to you. you know, otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it, probably. And so, uh, you know, in a, in a way, it's tautological that no, that somebody else is more likely to discover your mistakes than you are because if you knew it was a mistake you, you would not be making it in many cases um, Thank you for the great talk um, with regard to your um, pessimism about whether we can be trained to you know, uh, overcome certain inbuilt biases I wonder if there's a bit of room for hope from the evidence from cognitive behavioral therapy, where, which seems to show that if people have inbuilt biases that cause them a lot of emotional suffering, they can be trained to kind of permanently uh, not do them so much. Uh, and secondly, I want to ask, given your concerns about the, the, the kind of multiplicity and variety of well-being, do you think our government's been um, over hasty in coming up with one official definition which we all must fit and be measured to? I think uh, the mention of cognitive behavior therapy is very useful. Clearly, uh, people can be trained. Clearly, system one can be modified. I mean, it can, first of all, it updates its model of the world continuously. We're continuously learning and we're continuously adapting. And cognitive behavior therapy is a way of teaching emotional responses to change by, by revisiting situations and, and by changing, deliberately changing the responses to them. So that can be trained. What I think is unlikely to be trained is uh, assessing confidence by the coherence of the story that you construct. You know, that's a, that seems to be the way that we assess the con. I don't see cognitive therapy being useful for that. You can, you can cause people to doubt themselves a lot. That, I think, you probably could do. 
but you're not going to educate system one not to produce those multiple responses to stimuli because that's the way that it's constructed. With respect to whether you know, it is premature for the UK to base policy on, on well-being, it really is a matter primarily of temperament. I mean, you know, you've, you've got some optimists here and, and they are doers and they are going to do things and, and, and it's good that this is happening. Now, you know, if I were doing it, you know, that we'd be waiting a long time uh, be, <laughs> you know, because I'm a <coughs> pessimist and because I'm, I'm uh, a doubter. But it's, but I can recognize that the world is a better place when doubters are not in charge of it. <laughs> so someone upstairs next. Thank you very much. I'm just curious to know whether you think some people are substantially better decision makers uh, than others, and also if we can identify them. Well, uh, the, as to the question of whether there is a general trait of the quality of decision making, I think most psychologists would argue that this is very unlikely. That is, there are domains of decisions. And, and people can be very good at decisions in one domain, for example, about chess, and very poor about choosing you know, uh, friends or partners or, or whatever. I don't think that, that there is going to be a general uh, trait of good decision making. Uh, but we do know certain things. I mean, we, we know quite a few things about bad decision making that can be identified. So there are differences in intelligence that, that are important. There are differences in people's access to their own emotions, which turn out to be very important. Because emotion, uh, so says, uh, you know, Damasio, Antonio Damasio, very significant figure, emotion is part of good decision making and people do not have access to their own emotional responses in many situations make decisions that are much worse than people who do have that kind of access. So we, we know, I think, quite a bit about bad decisions and we can identify bad decision makers. Good decisions, I think it's harder. Hi, Juliet Michelson from the New Economics Foundation. Um, I wanted to question you about another of your pessimisms, about um, the ability of policy to make a difference to people's well-being. Um, because if you think of the way that um, uh, our society, both in the UK and in the US, is structured today, where people are encouraged to see consuming things as the route to success rather than pursuing meaningful activities, to travel long distances to work, commuting, not spending time with their families, working on building relationships, all of which there is, um, you know, we do have fairly good indications are causes of high well-being. Is that pessimism linked to a broader pessimism about the ability of policy to make big structural changes in society, or do you have another reason for your pessimism on that one? No, no. Actually, um, you know, in the first place, I entirely agree with, you know, that there are certain behaviors that are more conducive to well-being. You know, commuting is a miserable activity and there is very little to be, and people are really unhappy while they commute, and 
and if you could have a world without commuting, it would be a better world. Uh, spending a lot of time with people that you love and who love you is essential to emotional well-being, and we would certainly want a world in which people spend time with spend more time with with people they love. So there are certain answers, you know, about what a better world would look like, and you know we know that. And to the extent that policies can make the world a better place in these fairly obvious ways, then of course I'd, I'd be completely supportive of these policies. Inevitably, there'll be costs to any policy, and you know how to weigh that is very difficult. Now, Richard has a proposal because you would weigh that by measuring well-being, so it would all revolve, you know, resolve itself into one currency of well-being, and then you could see the effects of various policies in terms of well-being. Here, I'm less optimistic. That is, so I, I think we can point to a direction and know other things being equal, this would be a better world, but there will be trade-offs, and I, for the moment, have no idea how we go about assessing those trade-offs, because I find the idea of a single currency of well-being, at the moment, very complicated. Well, um, I was wondering, you said uh, there, are, there are clear um, reasons for, uh, for policy intervention, for regulatory intervention to protect people, uh, because we make predictable mistakes, uh, mistakes that are potentially very, very harmful. I was just wondering what your criterion would be for uh, sort of permissible and non-permissible interventions, because it's very easy to identify a need to protect people, mostly others, uh, from their own stupid mistakes, and that might go a little bit too far. I mean, there are the easy cases and there are the, the really hard cases where uh, some people might think, yes, intervention is needed, others might not. Is, is there any sort of process or rule or bright line that you, uh, that you would advocate in terms of distinguishing good and bad there? Uh, well, I'm very glad you asked that question because I certainly would not, uh, uh, would not want to give the impression that I believe there is a simple answer to it. Uh, it's very clear, I think, that there must be limits. I mean, we would not want to be in a world uh, where uh, you know, people are prohibited from eating French fries because it's not good for them. Uh, so there are certainly are, are, are limits to, you know, what what anybody, certainly society, should should be allowed to do in coercing individuals into things that are considered correct. One measure that behavior economists use, and um, when measuring principle, it's actually not measured, but it's anticipated regret. And, and that is a very important way in which uh, the Chicago School, say, deals with the world and where the way behavioral economics, I'm not a behavioral economist, but as I understand it, deals with the world. In the Chicago framework, people make a decision now and they're committed to it and to its consequences because they're assumed to know the consequences. So somebody who much in, later in life regrets not having saved enough is considered and really is considered, I think, by in, in the Chicago school, like someone who you know, treated himself to a great meal and, and now complains about the price, which was in the menu. Now, 
behavioral economists don't have that view. They don't believe that people, when they make their decision, necessarily know the consequences. But they have some idea about the kinds of decisions that people will regret later. And that is a possible criterion. And, and then there are other issues, which are issues of, of what kind of society you want to live in and how many constraints you want to impose on the citizens in society. And you know, we have examples all over the world. I mean, we have uh, Singapore is a very interesting example of a, of a state that, that really goes into individual life more than many other states do. And they're not champions of well-being. So there are costs to doing things for people, for you know, making people acting in ways that are supposed to uh, make people better off when they don't want it. Um, I wanted to ask about um, your ideas of bounded rationality and pessimism or optimism or lack, there, lack of optimism and prospect theory and how, it, how you would explain the reasoning behind the financial crisis and, and to take it one step further, you were discussing earlier about system one and two. How would you explain the interaction between system one and two in the minds of Europe's policymakers and <laughs> U.S. policymakers? Uh, uh, my answer to these questions is I really don't know. <laughs> you know so the questions are too hard for me. Um, and I think they're too hard for almost anyone. Uh, the, you know, the contribution of psychology to the financial crisis, so there is something that we can identify. And it's actually uh, limited. Uh, and and it, it is certainly the case that the people who bought, who committed themselves to mortgages that they could not hope to pay in, in a realistic world were making a mistake. And that the people who were selling them those mortgages were taking advantage of them. And that that, I believe, in my view, should have been prevented and could have been prevented in a better, in a better system of regulation. So that, you know, that's one thing. As for what happens and bankers and so on and what is the role of limited rationality, it, it appears to be that in the world as it existed, in, you know, as it exists to this day, if you have agents who can take risks on behalf of other people or on behalf of society and, and are, are, are actually rewarded for taking very large risks, then very large risks are going to be taken. And so we should expect that. And that is not irrational. I mean, the, the people who took large risks uh, were not irrational. They were clearly rational, and it was an agency problem, which standard economics deals with very well, and which psychology has very little to contribute to. Your other questions were too hard for me. <laughs> Yeah. 
Hi, I'm Andy. I'm a student here at LSE. Um, you mentioned that um, you think government can, can do very little on well-being. Are there things that you think individuals themselves can do to improve their well-being? Well, uh, you know, I didn't... I, I don't think I said that government can do very little. I said that there are many problems, you know, that might have to be solved and definitional problems. and So uh, I... I did not mean to say that there are no policies that uh, that can help well-being. You know, there are policies. Individuals, uh, can people be trained to to lead lives that will make them happier? I believe they can. I believe there are certain aspects of of life that people can be trained to control. Uh, so it should not be impossible to uh, make people make some better life decisions. Uh, for example, the trade-off between commuting and social life is one that perhaps people should consider more carefully. Uh, in health decisions, there are ways, I think, of improving the health, the decision that people make about health to improve their health, uh, you know, like considering consequences more carefully and considering the, the physical and emotional consequences of different courses of action. So th there are things that can be done. Mostly, we should recognize that the major determinant of well-being is, her is heredity. Well-being is about as heritable as height. So there are limits to what we can do because those differences are going to persist. But to some extent, I believe, the answer is yes, we can train people. Just a quick question, uh, Stefan. I'm a student here at LSE. So economics assumes that uh, um, the homo economicus um, is uh, a utility maximizing person, let's say. So what a, uh, and the problem is that we all have different utility functions. But then, would a better assumption be that, uh, that we are actually uh, misery minimizing, perhaps? Um, you know, people, scientists and economists, uh, make assumptions for particular purposes. Uh, you know, so you, you make the assumptions that are needed uh, to solve the problem, if the assumptions are reasonable enough. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that the misery minimization uh, in general would be better than the current theory. I see no reason to expect that. Hi, my name is Maria. I'm not an LSE student, but I'm, I'm in love with the library, so I'm always here. Uh, thank you very much for the speech. It was very uh, educational. Just a question. You might not know the answer, so it's okay. <laughs> Just um, if for, for someone who has a God complex, because you, you spoke of system one and system two, I'd be interested in knowing what the conversation would be um, for, for somebody who does have that complexity, uh, because you also mentioned gossip, how you judge yourself through others' eyes, and I don't think I have a God complex, and I don't think you do either. That's why I'm asking you to, <laughs> to answer this question, if you can. Could you define your terms? I mean, God uh, complex. Uh, yeah. It's something that I I watched. Um, I watched it on TED. I forgot what professor. 
but it's it's pretty much somebody who always thinks they're right. All who the believes they're right. Yeah, who always think they're right. So they, they never make a mistake. Um, and because you also mentioned confidence, that's the other thing that got my attention. So There is a general bias towards overconfidence. Most of us, uh, most of the time, are more confident in our judgments and decisions than then is objectively justified. The psychology of overconfidence is, I think, reasonably well understood because confidence is a feeling and it comes from the coherence of the story that, that your, your mind generated for you. And, and because we can construct coherent stories on the basis of very little information or poor information, uh, we tend by and large to be overconfident. And, and that may be a good thing because loss of confidence tends to mobilize system two and tends to slow you down. And you know, it's well known in the domain of organizations that you can, there's a term that's called paralysis by analysis. That, and, and clearly we cannot have system two govern our lives because it's too slow and too inefficient. We must trust our skills and our instinct in most of the decisions that we make. I wouldn't call that a God complex, but you know there is a lot of overconfidence and much of it is good. I mean, in the sense that doubt would be worse. Mm -hmm. do, do you mean that for the, for the individual or for the society? Because the overconfidence produces a lot of casualties. Yeah. But, but oh. maybe it's a the, the, the total of creativity is I, more. Oh, I think that clearly, what ideally you would want a decision-making setup where the quality of decisions would depend on the on the stakes, and where you know the high-stakes decisions are made better than decisions or made more carefully than than decisions with low stakes. Remarkably. <laughs> I'm not sure there is evidence for that proposition. That is, I'm really not sure uh, that the major decisions that people make uh, are necessarily, you know, the large decisions that leaders of organizations and institutions <coughs> and nations make are more sensible than the decisions that, you know, we make when we buy appliances. Now, they should be more sensible because more is at stake, but I'm really not sure that there is a correspondence between them. So you would want for high stakes decision, you would want individuals to slow down and you would certainly want institutions to slow down. And that doesn't always happen. Last question. Hi, thank you. Um, you've advocated for uh, government response, but uh, aren't you implicitly assuming there that the government behaves as a rational actor and isn't the government itself being a collection of individuals subject to irrationality and that makes the problem even more complicated? Well, uh, that is why, you know, of course the people who act for government uh, are, are fallible. They have more evidence than the individual does. They have a different perspective than the individual does. 
And if they're applying, and I suggested as a measure, you know, potential regret, and we, we have ways of measuring and assessing the quality of decisions by, by their ultimate consequences. I mean, what we know about individuals is that they are very focused on the short term. Now, the perspective that you take as a government or as a, is, is certainly a utilitarian perspective with respect to the individual's own life, so that the future should count just about as much as the present. Now, this takes somebody else to do. It is not the intuitive way that people will make decisions. And so you don't need to be all-knowing in order to put, a to put a different weight than people do on the immediate future and on the long-term future. I think, I think it is possible to do better than individuals do spontaneously without being dictatorial. Well, Danny, the amazing thing about your book, uh, as I said at the beginning, is that uh, if you read it, you will find how, how wrong your answers often are. Um, and that Danny was saying how uh, his answers have often been wrong. I think you should end with your story about the Israeli curriculum reform. Oh, uh, <laughs> okay. I will tell you um, the most, it's really the most embarrassing confession that I make in the book, and I, I make a number of them, but many years ago, in, in the 1970s, when I was in Israel, I, I had the idea of developing a curriculum for high schools uh, to train people, to train students in judgment and decision making uh, without mathematics. And I assembled a team, and we had some money from the Ministry of Education, and I assembled a team which there were eight or ten of us, uh, it was a nice team, and one of its members was the dean of the School of Education. Called him Seymour, that was his name, the late Seymour. And, and one day, after about a year, I, uh, I had the idea, and I don't remember why, of doing a forecasting exercise on ourselves. And so I asked everybody to write on a slip of paper uh, how long they thought it would take us to complete the book and hand in a completed draft to the Ministry of Education. And people wrote there on their slips of paper, and all the answers were in the range between 18 and 30 months. So we all agreed, between a year and a half and two and a half years. And then I asked Seymour, who was an expert on curriculum development, whether he could think of other groups that had done what we had done. Uh, and what we were attempting to do, that is develop a curriculum where none existed before, and he said he could do it. So uh, I said, can you visualize or imagine where those groups were when they were at roughly the stage of progress that we have accomplished? He said he could do it. And so I said, well, uh, what happened to them? And then he said, and th that I still remember because it was so shocking. He said, you know, they didn't all write a book. And my best estimate is that 40% of them never finished the book. That was not good. So then I asked him, uh, and those who finished, what happened to them? And he said, I can't think of any that finished in less than seven years. 
And I can't think of any that, that lasted for more than 10 before giving up. So roughly between seven and 10 years. And then I asked him the final question. Uh, and that was, well, when you compare our team in terms of its resources to the team that you have in mind, you know, how good are we? And he said, we're below average. <laughs> and, and then he added, but not by much. And so <laughs> that is the story about Seymour. And it has many important aspects. I mean, it, it illustrates a planning fallacy, you know, that you, you think you will accomplish and you think of the best case. It illustrates a difference between two fundamentally different ways of thinking about a, a problem. Taking the inside view, which is what we were doing, you know, extrapolating from past success and assessing, and taking the outside view, which was completely different. To tell you one part of the story, and then I'll have to add the final bit, the final humiliation. The, the, when the book was completed, I was no longer living in Israel. And that is the kind of thing that happens. The book was completed eight years later. It was a complete waste of time. Uh, the Ministry of Education had changed. Nobody wanted it, and that was it. Now, and for many years, I taught that example. And I, you know, I lectured about it, and, you know, I, and I really thought I was pretty clever. Uh, you know, the thinking of the outside view, the inside view, and all that, asking all those questions. And then I realized that the real idiot in that story. Have you seen who it, is, who it was? Well, I mean, I've given a broad hint. It was me. Because we should have quit that day. And we didn't. And that is a really profound point. We were staring at statistics. The statistics were telling us, quit. Nobody wanted to go on for years with a 40% chance of failure and to go on for seven years. None of us wanted that. None of us had any reason to believe that we're really different from the others. But we felt different. Our experience was that we were doing well. And our immediate experience prevailed against the statistics. And when you think that this was a team that was attempting to promote rational decision making, <laughs> You know, then the humiliation is complete. And now you wanted that confession from me. You, you got it. Back to Danny, last question. When you said about this project, how long did you think it would last? Uh, I mean, I, I, How long did you find that other people had taken? And how long did it take? Uh, well, uh, I have one thing to say. That when I decided to write that book, I knew I was making a mistake. <laughs> But, but I made it anyway. And, you know, that's important. And, of course, I was deluded about the difficulty, and I was deluded about many things. And other people were observing me, uh, including my friend Richard Thaler, who is known to many of you as the author of Nudge. I mean, they were laughing at me. They were saying, you've been boring us for years with that story of your book. And now, <laughs> and now you think you're going to finish this book easily? So, yes, I mean, uh, I am. Uh, it's very, very hard to learn from one's mistakes. I think you did incredibly well. And I strongly recommend this book. It is on sale outside. Then it's been a lovely evening. Thank you so much. You've changed the way I think uh, before this. 
and I hope that you've changed the way many people here think, but then I'm an optimist. <laughs> and thank you very, very thank much. You.